Why don't we get started? I know a couple other people are coming, but I don't want to uh, delay too long. So uh, thank you for coming. This is a, um, a lecture uh, sponsored by the, uh, the Masters in Cultural Sustainability, which is one of the professional master's programs here at Goucher. And um, for those of you who are undergraduate students, that we do have a four plus one program that we've just initiated. So if you want to find out more about that, be, you know, give us a uh, Give us a holler. We'd be happy to talk to you about that um, afterwards. But I want to introduce our speaker and let her get, um, get talking. Uh, Tanya actually contacted me about a year ago when she was still in the United Arab Emirates, and she was just really excited and interested in <clears throat> cultural sustainability and issues of culture and design. And then when she contacted us and said that she was going to be here in the United States um, for some time, we jumped on the chance to have um, an opportunity to hear a little bit more about what she's doing. Uh, she is an artist and a designer and a lecturer in the Department of Design at Victoria University in Wellington in New Zealand. Um, and she teaches there the first year design pro uh, classes, courses, mm -hmm. right? Um, and she's had previous uh, experience teaching undergraduate design in the United Arab Emirates as well as in the United States. Her research entails the development of pedagogical strategies that support the introduction of cultural and context-specific design production in beginning design education. She uh, did her undergraduate work at um, Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, and then her master's work at Cranbrook um, Academy of Arts. So she um, she's the best of the best. So. Wow. No expectations. Um, yeah, right. So no expectations. So, uh, so please welcome Tanya Sweet. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming this afternoon. Um, I am so happy to be back at Goucher. I had almost forgotten when I drove onto campus that I actually did a bunch of camps here during the summer about 25 years ago when I was in high school. Gosh, was it that long ago? Um, but Goucher is a beautiful campus, and I'm excited to see the new buildings and to hear about the new programs um, and to essentially be back home. I feel like I've come full circle, and I hadn't even realized that was going to happen. So that's always a good surprise. Um, so I have been fortunate to teach abroad for the past seven years or so, and I've also taught in Detroit, uh, which is almost like teaching abroad. And <laughs> Uh, again, I have a specialty in teaching first-year design, and so I guess I would define first-year design as the first and second years of the first design uh, education with um, students coming in and having to be introduced to all the principles and elements of design. And it's very much like an art program, for those of you who are in art. And um, of course, it has its specialties in terms of the programs it's affiliated with. Now, at the American University of Sharjah, our programs that the first-year design, uh, design students were filtering into included things like architecture, interior design, uh, visual communications, media design, uh, with architecture probably being the predominant one. The school where I am now at Victoria University of Wellington, our students are going into industrial design, which of course is primarily a product design program, and media design, and we also have a program called Culture and Context, which is a theory and studio-based uh, program at the undergraduate level. 
So I tell you this because the work that I'll be presenting today is actually from my time teaching in Sharjah at the American University in the United Arab Emirates. But I'm hoping to take these same ideas eventually and see how I can apply them in New Zealand um, because certainly I think they're applicable universally. In my teaching and my travels, I've observed firsthand um, through my experiences the effects of globalization and what Thomas Friedman refers to as the flattening of the world. And what I have noticed is that there is an increasing amount of ubiquitous material objects and material design. Um, for instance, when I travel to a foreign country, I see the same type of buildings in some cases, the same products. Um, and this, I think, is a really good example of a ubiquitous product. This chair I have seen in Japan, I have seen in the Middle East, I have seen in um, the North Pole region of Scandinavia, um, in the Palestinian camps in Jordan. They often cut a hole into them and use them as toilets. Um, a friend of mine recently showed me an image from his trip to Yemen, and there were Yemeni soldiers sitting around playing cards on these chairs. And of course, they're probably in most of the background, uh, backyards here in the US. Um, so this simple plastic mold injected chair, um, you know, it exists everywhere. So how does that function in culture? Uh, what does it say about the cultures? Or does it start to change the cultures that it infiltrates? And I start to question these things. Um, and of course, we could apply the same idea to any material object, anything that is designed and um, uh, that exists in the world. So while there's no doubt that there are enormous benefits of globalization, the fact is that to some degree our contemporary globalized condition is resulting in a dilution of cultural diversity and subsequently an increase in ubiquitous design on the global scale. I'm personally interested in the cultivation of contextual design solutions that reflect the values and material language of a place and that support the emotional needs of a culture. The cultivation of phenomenal attributes in design that resonate with meaningful aspects of our cultural past, but within the context of our present condition. And this is not particularly a new idea. I'm not pretending to be um, so very clever that this is a brand new idea. In fact, in architecture, uh, this is considered to be uh, critical regionalism. And that was coined as a term by a architect and theorist, Kenneth Frampton, probably about 30 years ago or so now. Um, in line with my ideas, critical regionalism is not in support of the revival of vernacular languages or structures or the mimicking of traditional design of a culture, but instead it's about the desire for a contemporary critical interpretation of material forms and spaces that are expressive of cultural values and innovative, and I, I kind of want to say innovative, that's my new New Zealand accent, yet contextual aesthetic attributes. Um, over the past few years, 
when I was teaching at the American University of Sharjah, I started thinking about this and I started developing a pedagogy that I could apply to beginning design and potentially, again, second and maybe third year design. Um, and last year, I taught a furniture design studio um, that addressed these ideas, and in particular, the growing need for the cultivation of cultural identity in contemporary design. The studio is comprised of primarily second and third year students who were pursuing degrees in architecture and interior design. Um, we didn't have a product design program, but if we did, there would certainly be those students in there as well. And uh, the project itself entailed the design of a bespoke functional object fabricated to scale. So the idea of furniture was defined loosely, as it is often in schools. Um, talk a little bit more about these in a second. An exploration of the relationship of material to culture served as a primary motivator in this pedagogy and an engagement with materials was incorporated at every stage of the uh, project within the entire semester um, studio, including the initial formation of students' conceptual ideas. So the conceptual collages that you see here, um, this is the, the first project where the students are doing research, um, and I'll tell you exactly what that means for this studio in a second but they are immediately going into a material language where they are dealing with things like space, form, patterns, materials, and production processes. And these um, attributes or these um, uh, characteristics in particular are what are the guiding principles of the student's project. So they're in a way developing a material palette and a palette of processes that speaks to their concept and then that informs the design of their furniture piece. So to initiate the project, students were asked to research and reflect on cultural rituals. But ritual was defined in a fairly pedestrian way so that rituals could be secular or they could be religious. They could be social, they could be private. And um, of course, secretly, I wanted all of my students to look into very intimate cultural rituals, but I didn't want to force it down their throats. Um, so that openness actually allowed them to come up with very interesting interpretations on how they defined ritual, uh, which actually taught me quite a lot. Sometimes it's nice not to have things go the way that you had planned. Uh, so they located historical precedents, of course. This is standard in a design research project. And they also looked at existing case studies. And they also participated in what I would call an amateur ethnography. But in essence, they did a lot of introspection. And I directed them in terms of the questions that they had to ask themselves. And they also asked their family members, oftentimes their grandparents, um, and other people in their cultural community. So that was an interesting process for them that they don't usually undertake in the design school. The act of making, offering beginning design students the direct and haptic experience of the manipulation of materials is integral to the education of young designers. It allows students to gain a hands-on understanding of materials in regards to their properties and limitations, 
their fabrication potentials, and the phenomenological attributes, which of course brings an awareness to things like the texture, the weight, perhaps the sound that a material makes if you hit it up against something. And all of these attributes, in fact, end up being the essence of how they express their cultures. Um, and I, that might sound kind of far-fetched, but once we move past the students saying, well, my culture is based on these stereotypes and these uh, archetypes that we would normally associate a culture with in the first instance, and usually through appropriation, Ultimately, when the students were researching rituals, it was about a memory of a sound or of a taste or of um, the feeling of something, the interaction with a particular material or object. And that's sort of the meat of this. And it's the unspoken um, poetry, I think, that exists in this idea. And that's particularly what I'm interested in, of course. So as part of this, I asked the students to produce material studies. Now these were very exploratory, and they didn't have to be functional, they didn't have to look like furniture, but I wanted them just to play with materials and start to get a better understanding of what the materials did and how they related to their conceptual ideas. And also as part of this, of course, I was teaching them a lot of different skills. Um, I was introducing them to both digital and analog tools, um, and I introduced them in a synthesized way, meaning um, in a standard design education, it's typical that students will be introduced to traditional analog tools like the, the wood shop and the chisels and, and what we would consider to be basic um, equipment. Um, but I prefer to introduce them to both the digital tools and software that's affiliated with those digital tools and the analog tools at the same time. Now, this is a pedagogy all in its own, um, but the reason I bring it up is because there's a reason that I do that. One, of course, I feel like it uh, produces more innovative approaches when the students use all of the tools at their uh, availability. And in this case, in Sharjah, we have an amazing shop set up with just about everything you can imagine. Um, but the other reason is, is that I wanted to ensure that students weren't replicating traditional processes. Um, they could reference a production process that they researched based on their ritual and their, their cultural uh, identities, but I didn't want them to mimic um, a traditional methodology that was entailed in the production of a historical artifact. Um, rather, I wanted them to take advantage of all the technology has to provide in their pursuit of reflecting these cultural identities within a contemporary context. So as part of that process, um, again, the student, students did a lot of exploring. I, I made sure that the design process itself took up most of the time, and then they finally fabricated a piece. But I wanted to give them the opportunity to explore all the various possibilities so that they did not make a beeline to the most expected um, outcome. So in this case, I had um, an Emirati student who was very um, engaged with the process of weaving. And I'll show you her final piece in a minute. But she researched weaving of many different types of materials and in many different ways. So for instance, she wove metal, she wove wire, um, she wove different types of metal. Uh, and she was trying to locate 
the appropriate materiality and texture and coloration that she identified with the culture today. And this is a very ambiguous thing, the culture of the United Arab Emirates today, because it's in flux. I wouldn't even know exactly where to begin, except for that it's a uh, culture with a lot of misaligned uh, present and past moments, and, and no one quite knows exactly where they converge, right? So I'm going to show you a number of pieces that the students produced. So for instance, this is the piece that was produced as a result of that exploration. And the concept of this piece is based on the weaving and the rolling of a prayer rug. So you can see that in the form, but ultimately it's a contemporary form. So uh, the coloration that was given to the wicker, the wicker ended up being the final material that she decided to use. The coloration is actually a direct relationship to a particular dye used in a particular region in the Emirates. So she did replicate that coloration. And there is, I don't know if you can see it, but there is a small detail of copper wire that runs through as well. And that's also a small nod to a, a, a traditional material. This piece, um, I think was really motivated by the materiality and the texture, uh, which is an interesting approach in terms of its tactility. This student is from India, and her ritual was based on the tradition, I, I don't remember the name of the particular ceremony, uh, but women in the community would get together and they lay flower petals down on the ground, right onto the soil in these beautiful, ornate, colorful patterns. And the color and the texture is truly amazing. And I think the student actually managed to capture this. Um, so there are these colorful silk petals. Now the silk, of course, is also a connection back to the tradition because silk, of course, uh, we could probably identify with India pretty easily. Um, and the stool itself is steel. So it's given a rusty finish. The student told me that this is her understanding, or her representation, rather, of the, the conflicting realities of India. For instance, tradition is very important in India, but there's also a strong sense of industry. And there is a bit of a conflict between the two. And this is her way to resolve that. And of course, tactily, it's quite an experience to sit on this and to all the, the little petals. This piece is made by a student who's from Syria and she decided to use concrete as her predominant material and she chose that for its sense of weight and permanence. But juxtaposed with the concrete is teak and that what is what makes those legs. And teak has a very strong tradition in the Middle Eastern region. In fact it's used really in the boat industry because it's a very um, durable wood with natural oils in it. So I think that this juxtaposition is interesting. Conceptually, it was inspired by the tradition of drinking Syrian coffee and the social aspect that that results in. So it, it's a way to bring people together. So the table is the scale of about a bar table. So people can stand around it. And it does function actually exactly in this way. There's a small tea light at the bottom of this orifice in the top of the surface. 
and it really brings people together to look inside. Um, so it, it actually functions really effectively in that way. And it weighs a ton. It weighs a ton. And the pattern, of course, the pattern, maybe it's obvious to me and maybe it's not to you, so I'll say, it's an abstraction of an Islamic pattern. So it's her rendition of a, a sort of contemporary tweaking of an Islamic pattern, and she actually took it into the computer and manipulated it. So I thought that was an interesting approach. This piece is also by a Syrian student, and it's also related to Syrian coffee, but it's a completely different uh, motivator that inspired the design of it. Um, it's a small piece, and it's of a size where it's quite easy to pick it up. Now, conceptually, it's inspired by the tradition of drinking Syrian coffee with women, in particular, uh, a group of friends or uh, people that you're just meeting, visitors. And when you would finish drinking the coffee, you turned the cup upside down for a minute, and then you turned it right, bad, uh, right side back up. And together as a group, they would read the coffee grounds, much like we would understand reading tea leaves. So in that way, they would determine each other's future. So uh, this is a, a community building or a, a socializing um, ritual. So the concavity references the coffee cup, and the pattern inside the concavity in the top of this table is interesting in itself in that certainly it references the pattern and texture of the coffee grounds, but it was developed as a result of a figure ground study of Arabic text. So if you're very familiar with Arabic and you're willing to take the time to, to figure it out, the raised areas are actually the spaces between the letters, but it's abstracted. Now, the plate in the middle of the concavity has a bit of text on it from the Quran, and it essentially says only Allah can tell the future. I'm paraphrasing. But it's only part of the phrase, and you actually have to turn the table upside down in order to read the rest of the phrase. So this is ultimately inspired by a ritual action or interaction. And again, I'm using the term ritual loosely, um, but I think that was a really interesting approach to consider the action and how she can design a form that pays tribute to that action. And it's based on a traditional form, but it's using a lot of digital technology. Um, these stools are designed by a, um, a Lebanese student, and they are inspired by a particular tea that she would drink with her sisters and mother. And apparently it's a traditional tea in both Syria and uh, Lebanon called surat. And it's a tea made out of flowers. And it's a tea that you drink when you're sick or when you have a group of people that you want to feel cozy with um, and have intimate discussions. So she designed these stools that are individual, but they nest to become one unified form, uh, which speaks to that social and intimate kind of action. And the pattern, of course, is, is an Islamic pattern. It's a traditional Islamic pattern but it's pared down so that you can also see it as being the flower pattern. And there's a positive-negative play between the laser-cut 
steel and the CNC routed pattern on the side, meaning it's the same pattern, but one is in a positive and one is in a, a relief or a negative. In this case, I think the student was predominantly inspired by the pattern. This student is Palestinian, and she was inspired by the tradition of baking bread. And bread, of course, has a, a strong connection probably in every culture, I would imagine, or something like bread. Um, what was interesting about this is she spoke a lot with her grandmother, who's quite old, who still lives in Palestine. And of course, uh, my students who are Palestinian can't travel in and out of Palestine. So she doesn't know her grandmother very well, but she was able to write her letters. So that whole process alone was pretty amazing. And um, her grandmother spoke about baking bread for the family and waking up in the morning every day and baking this bread, which is uh, baked or prepared in an oven that is dug into the ground. So this oven actually inspired the piece. So certainly there's the pattern that is very recognizable, but ultimately it was the form that inspired the design of the piece. Now this piece is a bit of a monster and I put it in um, partially <laughs> to prove that not everything was a, a very successful outcome in the studio. And of course I'm hiding some of the other pieces from you. But, um, but what's really interesting about this piece, this student I believe is also Palestinian and she was very inspired by a ritual um, about baking cookies and it was a particular cookie that I believe she prepared in preparation for the celebration at the end of Ramadan and it was a cookie that she made with her mother and sisters and it relied on a cookie mold and the cookie mold is a, a long piece of wood or a long-ish narrow piece of wood with a cookie mold at the end of it and they would push the dough into it and in order to release the dough they would slap it onto the table and it was this sound that the cookie mold made that she really resonated with. And it was that audible experience that she wanted to portray in how she identified with her culture, which I thought was really quite amazing. I'm not crazy about the final form, but I think that to use a sound to inspire a form is a really interesting process to go through. And I'd be really curious to see how that could be explored further. I have two more left. This is one of the two. It's a little bit difficult to see this form, but um, this piece is taking a divergent um, direction from the other pieces in that this was an Emirati student who was thinking about the cultural identity of, uh, of being an Emirati and what that meant in the United Arab Emirates today. And what she ended up focusing on was what she termed the ritual of consumerism. And she chose to use styrofoam, which of course is a byproduct of the consumer culture, as the dominant material. So therefore, taking the byproduct of consumerism and making it the product, which I thought was a really interesting interpretation. Um, the pattern was loosely inspired by Islamic tiling, and it's a lamp. And I, this is actually a backlit image on top of the modules that are lit, and the styrofoam has these really amazing 
translucent effects. Yeah, I thought this was very interesting. And it's very contemporary. I mean, you would never guess that this is related to the United Arab Emirates, but I think once you understand the concept, it's, it's actually quite fun. So this piece is produced by a student from Egypt, and um, she also took a slightly different direction. Um, I think that the way that I introduced the project to the students allowed them to definitely go into it um, according to their own individual ideas and what was important to them. And certainly it allowed them the opportunity to approach potentially contentious um, ideas if they wished to, which is rare for a Middle Eastern student to do, to um, express anything contentious. So this lamp is inspired by the current situation in Egypt and the recent protests that have been happening for the past um, year or so. And um, it's this steel structure, and there's actually two steel structures. One is embedded within the other. It's very difficult to see, but you can see these small vertical lines within this kind of cage form. And cage is probably the appropriate word, and it's twisting. So there is this inherent tension in the form. And she found this very sheer fabric that's actually quite delicate, which I think uh, is purposeful to contrast with the, the strength of the steel frame. And what she did was she located news resources from all over the world, from newspapers from the US, from Europe, from the Middle East. And she screen printed images from all of these various news sources onto the fabric. In her way, she's making a statement about the um, global nature um, of what's happening in a very local, regional condition, meaning that we are global participants in all of these events that are happening around the world because of our globalized condition. So, um, it's actually so contentious that we were worried about showing it, which is pretty, it says something right there, I think. It's, it's pretty interesting. And it's a lamp which speaks to life and hope. So, of course, I have more questions than I have answers, but I wanted to um, say something before I, I would love to ask you all questions. Uh, throughout history, material objects have functioned to express ourselves, both in regard to status and individual expression. They are a reflection of the psychology of the individual. And um, for those of you who are familiar with the movie Fight Club, for instance, has anyone seen Fight Club with Edward Norton? There's this one scene where it's going through and looking at the various pieces of furniture in the apartment and you know, what it means, what it's a symbol of, and um, I, I, I probably should have brought in a clip of that because I know it's silly for me to reference it. But really, our possessions end up being a reflection of ourselves. What car we drive, what does our phone look like, um, etc. what do our shoes look like. But material objects, of course, also connect us to cultural traditions. And I suspect that they do this in a very phenomenal way meaning uh, it's about the sensory experience of those material objects, the tactility, 
uh, the texture, the sound, the smell. So I wonder, what does it say about the collective individuals who make up a culture if they share the same type of possessions as people from other diverse cultures around the world? And how can we claim to celebrate diversity while at the same time be consumers and designers within an increasingly ubiquitous, universally driven design industry? Today's students will have an enormous impact on the shape of our material world in the coming years. And I believe that educators are ultimately responsible for bringing an awareness to the potential cultural deficiencies that result from globalization. And with that, um, I have a few questions here. For instance, can contemporary design support and sustain culture? Can design assist in the development of newly defined contemporary cultural identities? And in our increasingly globalized world, should designers create contemporary design outcomes that allow for greater cultural specificity? Thank you.